0: Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, an evolved perspective on life with dogs. Well, it's all right, riding around in the breeze, well, it's all right, if you live the life you please, well, it's all right. Uh, Great to be here today on this fine May afternoon in Seattle. Great day to take your dog for a walk. And uh, I've got a couple great events coming up and a great show here today. Um, I'm going to be talking with, um, after our first break, an author named Bronwyn Dickey. And she wrote a book titled Pitbull. And it is a, a really well put together book. Um, you'll hear my conversation with her in just a few minutes. And um, it's been the first opportunity that I've really had to talk about this this. Pitbull issue uh, with somebody else, and in, in probably the most balanced way that I have so far. And we kind of talk about that in our conversation and certainly in the book. The one thing that I would say, um, I learned a lot, as I always do from my guests um, on the show over the years, uh, one of my favorite parts of doing this. One of the things that I would say. Though, um, before you listen to the interview and and if you're going to read the book, which I really, really highly recommend, this is a really important topic that we all get educated about and um, really understand what is going on here. And really, one of Bronwyn's big points is that it's, you know, this is as much a, a human issue, if not more so a human issue than it is about than it is a dog issue. And I don't mean that in the sense of the behavior of it. I mean that in the sense of uh be the the issue of uh dogs as weapons in general it's not just pits but um um is really a reflection of a of an issue um in human society so it's sort of they are a reflection of us as they are in so many other ways both positive and negative um the only thing about the book that I thought was missing or that was a little off was that when she's in in sort of defense of the breed, uh, and talking about, you know, they're not dangerous. Um, you know, and then, and then she goes on to cite lots of dog bite statistics towards humans. And the point is that there are so few, um, from, from that breed and, um, and so that, then how can they be so dangerous? How can they be these monsters that people say they are and all that kind of stuff? And I certainly don't think that the breed in general are monsters at all. However, the, the thing to know and to just understand as part of this conversation is that when they are dangerous, and sometimes they are, it's towards other dogs. It's not towards people. So, when I worry about uh, a dog that might look like a pit bull or is a pit bull or whatever that's showing signs of dog aggression, that is what is dangerous or can be dangerous. Not all pits, certainly, Um, possibly not even most of them, show, you know, have that problem. But some of them do. And when they do, it's unfortunately, it can be lethal. And I have unfortunately had direct experience with this over the years more than once with friends, dogs, with clients, dogs, blah, 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 blah. So you just do come across. And I think what's important is that we hold the whole world of this conversation at once. It's not one or the other. Um, and and this book is, for the most part, a really, really well put together and very well informed um sort of holding of this world, and I learned a ton about the history of the breed and the culture, the human psychology around it. Really, really recommend it. She's going to be in Seattle this Saturday, the 28th, May 28th, at Elliott Bay Books doing a book signing at 7 p.m., so you can meet the author and get yourself a copy and read it, and uh, definitely recommend it. So enjoy my interview with Bronwyn Dickey. The book's title is Pitbull. We'll be back in just a few minutes. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Looking for an easy way to give your dog's food a boost in nutrition? or maybe your dog has a sensitive digestive tract, itchy skin, or is just a picky eater. We've had such great success feeding St. John Creamery raw goat's milk to our pack, and I recommend it to my clients all the time. You can get raw goat's milk for your dog all over the country, but if you live in Western Washington, be sure it's St. John Creamery you reach for in the freezer section of your local independent pet supply store. You can also pick up your milk at drop locations around the area visit stjohncreamery.com to learn more. That's stjohncreamery.com. Your dogs will love you for it. This is Martha Norwalk, every Sunday morning beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to the Whispering Dragon Center in Seattle, we cover the world of animals. This week, October 15th, it's a best Sunday with Dr. Nels Rasmussen in the studio. Dr. Nels can help with emotional, behavioral, or physical problems. He can test for allergies, drug, or supplement compatibility and dosages for you and or your animal friends. So, plan to join us, Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. Host at DogRadioShow.com. That's me, Julie Forbes. Host at DogRadioShow.com. I look forward to connecting. Wait, dogs can use
1: Skype? We're really living in the future. (laughs) Get inspired every hour right here on Alternative Talk 1150.
0: And now, back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. And uh, with us on the line, we have Bronwyn Dickey, who is the author of a new book titled Pitbull. And after my talk with Bronwyn, I'll be talking with a really fun company titled Pride Bites. And they were actually on the show Shark Tank, which is one of my favorite shows to watch. I really enjoy that show. So I'm looking forward to talking with them about their customized uh, pet products as well. So we're going to bring Bronwyn Dickey on the line with us. Bronwyn, welcome to The Dog Show. Hi. Thank you for having me. Hi. So you are going to be actually in Seattle May 28th, I think? Yes. And are you here, I assume, for a book-related event?
2: Yes. I'm doing a reading at Elliott Bay that evening at, uh, I think it's 7 p.m.
0: Okay, cool. And that's May 28th at 7 p.m. So your book is an important one and just loaded with information. And I always find these interviews with Uh, authors like you who have written such a a uh, well-organized and loaded kind of jam-packed book. Easy and challenging at the same time because really challenging only in the sense that we just don't have enough time to cover everything. (laughs) I understand. But this is a topic that is a a big one in the dog world for sure and not one that I've really specifically addressed. I did actually interview uh, Randall Lockwood who you actually mention in the book Uh, back in, I don't know what, several years ago, uh, when the whole Michael Vick dogfighting bust happened. And, but that was sort of a specific story and sort of his role in that, uh, in that case. And, um, but really kind of a conversation about pit bulls. And it's a, it's a loaded one for sure. And, um, you know, the book, I, I appreciate you putting this book together. I think it's an important topic for dog lovers to be engaged in in a way that is informed and balanced and that's hard to do in topics of debate in general as humans um, and I wonder if it's even more difficult with dogs because they elicit such a strong emotional response from us so that we have such a strong heart connection with our dogs it's very easy to feel emotion around them one way or the other right whether it's fear-based or whether it's oh, protected so yeah yeah. Not- so very interesting. I you know, it's like, oh gosh, okay, so where do we even start? So you were inspired to write this book from your personal dog who you adopted who was labeled as a pit bull mix, was that right, or a pit bull?
2: She was just labeled as a pit bull when we adopted her. Okay. Um and I, I actually I kind of started researching the subject a little bit before that. Mm. Um in two thousand eight, actually I um I I usually tell people I was terrified of pit bulls. I didn't know anything about them, only that I wanted to stay as far away from them as possible. Um, And I actually knew so little that I assumed anyone who had a pit bull somehow tacitly endorsed dog fighting. Mm -hmm. That was a little I knew. Mm -hmm. Um, And then some good friends of mine introduced me to their dog, who was purely wonderful. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of made me wonder, as a journalist, is this dog an outlier, or is there a little bit more to this story? I kind of wondered, how did I learn to be afraid of these dogs? in mm. place Because mm-hmm. I had never had any contact with them. So I started doing a little bit of research, and I saw that people in the animal sciences were adamant that these media scare stories were more hype than, than accurate, and that this had kind of been a hysteria that people who had done really careful, rigorous, thorough research were having to battle all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were thousands of, of people out there who were, who were saying, this is not my experience at all. I'm just a normal person with a normal dog. So then when we adopted our dog, it was really just a personal connection with, with one dog that, um, that kind of changed things. Me, and I think that's the story of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy to have a stereotype when members of that group are just kind of a faceless mob. But when you have a meaningful interaction with one member of that group, and it changes you, um, you start to think about your assumptions a little more.
0: Well, it's interesting. So my background is is in dog training and behavior, and I've done I've worked in this field for about 15 years. And before that, I have a degree in animal science. So it's interesting because regardless, one I mean, one of the things that I've said, whenever I talk about training and behavior on the show, um, and with my clients, pretty much, I mean, almost daily, literally. And then on the show, you know, over the years on the shows that I've done training and behavior talks, every dog, first of all, is an individual, right? So, always approaching every dog as a unique individual with their own set of you know combination of genetics and temperament and personality and 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 history and you know experience and all the yeah. stuff that makes that dog into his or her, her own individual and then we also have some generalizations that are helpful in understanding A dog as an individual, it's important. It is important to understand their genetics because of it plays into their instincts in some cases, you know, herding breeds versus sporting dogs and versus terriers and et cetera, et cetera. And then there's variations within those breeds. And you have some, you know, sort of almost like a feels to me, uh, I guess, spread out statistically kind of like a bell curve. You have the ones on the, the high drive whatever the breed is that are just sort of almost crazy high drive. And then you've got everybody right. in between and then you've got the, you know, the border collie that doesn't want to herd sheep, which would be the exception, but they're out there as well. Sure. So, you know, but it is, and it is important that we understand every dog as an individual. And, and I really appreciate the time that you spend in the book talking about this as a human Issue. And I don't mean that to say, I mean, I'm going to get into different aspects of, of this conversation, um, you know, in this interview, but to look at the projection that's happening, the racism and classism that's happening and, and how that's really fueling this fire with a breed, with a history of predisposition to on the high, on the high end, not, not all of them, but, to you know, looking at what their history is, and and the dog fighting and the guarding and all that kind of stuff. So it's just there's so much to it, and then you've just got so much prejudice that's happening, and and fear, and oh my gosh! I mean, when you started researching this, coming from which you know you just described yourself as really not knowing anything, you you really tapped into something huge, <laughs> as well, you it was discovered.
2: Really was really important for me um, kind of early on, and maybe it was helpful that I did not consider myself a, quote, dog person, or I didn't assume that I had more knowledge than I had. I'm sure you as a trainer, you know, have sometimes felt the frustrations of how often people make assumptions about dog behavior based on something they've seen on television or, you know, something they've read in a magazine or something someone's grandmother told them. Um, that really isn't supported by science. I mean, look at how long it's taken—you um, know—careful, thoughtful trainers and behaviorists to debunk the dominant paradigm, and yet it still keeps coming up, and people just kind of won't let it go. Mm-hmm. Um, dogs are so close to us; we really do kind of see in them what we what we want to see. And and I completely agree with you that um, no one should reduce any aspect. Of animal behavior to one or the other and I was very important for me not to do that so there were the people who were saying you know genetically these are mutants you know pickles are mutants and genetically they're just hardwired to be horrible um, and then on the other side you have people who say it's all how you raise them right and you know there are no quote bad dogs only bad owners and these kind of cliches that mm-hmm. are that are peppered throughout the culture and any, either of those reductions to me immediately just did not seem accurate. And the more I spoke with animal behaviorists and behavioral geneticists um, and trainers and all these people, they, they really impressed on me how many layers there were to the science of behavior and how complicated it is and how we really we really just can't reduce it. But yes, in, in the final instance, I was so kind of surprised when um, I, I thought I was going to be writing this book about dogs, really, but really what I was writing about was the way we are—we perceive dogs yeah. and the way we project onto them yeah. and how much meaning we endow them with, the symbols that they become oh, in our lives. Yeah. And so sometimes it's a little bit hard to disentangle where we end and they begin.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I recently interviewed Kim Cavan, who wrote a book called *The Dog Merchants*, which just mm-hmm. just uh, was published, and it's uh, speaking to this uh, more broadly between purebred and and um, purebred dogs, and and not even mixed breed dogs, but but rescue dogs. And there's the one side point, you know, two sides pointing fingers at each other, and 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 the problem's only really getting worse. And uh, it's very well done, but it's it's a it's a similar kind of conversation where you have these these two and I have a quote written down that you really put it um, so well in the book where um, oh any here it is any creature that inspires such strong emotions is destined to be both scapegoated by its enemies and overprotected by its advocates and when this happens distortions fables and half truths can run in both directions and that, that would be my frustration with this pit bull topic is that you have people um, wanting, you know, uh, all of these different breeds just banned, you know, but just get rid of them all and, and that'll solve the problem. And then the other side of the coin of, of it's, Oh, it, you know, kind of not, not honoring who they are as dogs genetically. And that there are a small percentage of, pit bull type dogs, and I know that one of your points is that that's kind of hard to classify, but that do have really dangerous problems with dog aggression, not human aggression, but dog aggression. Um, and I think that must come from their the dog fighting history. Um, and the, well, I think the challenge is that when it is there, it's it can be deadly. I mean, I've unfortunately witnessed many examples of this with clients who've had dogs killed.
2: Yeah. And terribly tragic whenever it happens. Um and yeah, I, I another thing that I wanted to be sure and not do because I had kind of seen so much um I don't want to say, you know, propaganda, but just kind of easy reduction happening. Um, I didn't want to say, you know, there are no such things as breed traits and that just doesn't exist and it's everything's uh complete construct and and all that because we know that isn't true but again it's kind of like there are layers upon layers of things mm-hmm. with, even with the american people Terrier, even when dog fighting was legal only you know historical estimates the people who are most knowledgeable about that you know uh what would you say horrible crime yeah um Estimate even in like in historical documents, they're only estimating that between one and ten percent of the dogs had what it took to be able to, to engage in that task. Mm-hmm. Um, so as the breeds have gotten more popular and the kind of um, the standards have been relaxed, I mean now most pit bulls, especially that I encountered in my in, in my reporting, they they aren't bred to a historical working standard. It's, of like dog A looks like dog B and we'll mate them together and get dogs that look like pit bulls. Mm-hmm. Um so it's really hard to kind of disentangle like which lines you're talking about, which populations you're talking about, because this category has gotten so big. Yeah and the dogs are so ano- I mean look at some and it and it happens with all breeds. Look at the incredible behavioral variations you see in something like the German Shepherd. hmm or even golden retrievers you know, labradors yeah. or their you know like working labradors from you know in Scotland are going to be uh, much different than AKC show labradors in New York. Mm-hmm. So it kind of um, for me it was just it's important to impress on people that that a breed is not a set of clones. There are many, many choices mm-hmm. being made by lots of different breeders along the way, and you look at how uh, the character of a population can change even in a few generations. If you think about like the Siberian foxes, yeah. that experiment, how in 40 generations the entire character of the dogs had change, uh, the, of the foxes yeah. had changed. Um, so that I guess. Um, what was really interesting to me was how dynamic evolution and selection are. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like the breeds kind of, when the stud book closed, that's just what the dogs were, and it, they were like cranked out in an assembly right. line. It's, right. There are all these selection pre- pressures going. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was that was really important. But I, as you say, I didn't want to... Um, give anyone the illusion that there's no such thing as a breed trait or that genetics have no role in in behavior or anything like that. I think that's, that's silly and that's unfortunate and that doesn't help us understand animal behavior.
0: Yeah, totally. One of the things that I, I thought, um, which sort of throughout the book, I found it to be very interesting and very important and, and really got me thinking in my own life, like, wow, you know, this just sort of thinking more in depth, um, really about this as a human issue and um, and uh, you talk a lot about racism and classism and you t- give examples going back in, in history um, to support that. And, and at the very beginning of the book or close to the beginning of the book, you gave an example of an organization that works to keep dogs in their current homes by improving their welfare where they are rather than bringing the dogs to shelters. The Coalition for Unchained Dogs And you were talking with the director, Lori Hensley, and uh, she had said 80% of her clients owned pit bulls. And you remarked that it was one of the first animal groups that cared as much about the well-being of the person as it did about the pet. And kind of talking about your experience going, and talking with Lori about her experience going to all of these homes, you know, and walking through these neighborhoods and, and they thought at first, you know, we'll just give everybody fences, you know, if we'll provide the funding to build a fence, then you can get these dogs off chains. But it was really, uh, for me, um, illuminated the reality of of why the dogs are chained and and all of the factors to that and that it's not necessarily that it's the, the family's choice it's their lack of resources and ac- you know, access to resources and all of these other problems that are more of a human problem um, and then the dogs being a reflection of that and so really focusing exactly. on helping yeah. the humans
2: right um, and as I volunteered with the group myself and kind of followed Lori on her outreach visit that became such an important theme in everything that, that I saw because once you see it a different way. Once you see it from the other person's perspective, you really can't ever unsee it. And I think for most of us who love and care about animals, um, you know, seeing something like a dog on a chain is is incredibly difficult, and it really tugs at us. And for some people, it makes us angry, and there are all these emotions that go along with that. But um, I, I learned very quickly that if all you can see is, is that dog on the chain and you can't see kind of the suffering that, that put the dog there, then you're missing a huge part of the picture. Because Lori and I, had, we we talked about this quite a bit, how often, as um, as sad as some of those situations were for the dog living outside the house, many times the living conditions inside the house for the people were even worse.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and so behind these, um, you know, Lori always says behind broken dogs are broken people. And if you can do something to help, you know, establish goodwill and community building and make that situation, you know, treat people with dignity and respect and give them the proper information and the resources, it's amazing how much can change. Um, you know, I, I, as I wrote a little bit about in the book, I saw these, you know, scared, scrawny um, dogs turn into these really sleek, wonderful, happy family pets. But I also saw people um, go from this kind of attitude of shame and embarrassment about what they couldn't provide Mm. to taking enormous pride in their pets. So many of them actually didn't even live in the fence after a while. The dogs just moved inside Mm. um, because the person was able to have this, this bond that they'd never been able to have with their dogs because they didn't have the proper information and so many people in America live in areas where there is no proper information about pet care and pet health and behavior and, and all these things. Um, so I think a lot of us who love animals kind of take for granted all the resources that we have available to us. You know, if I need to take my dog to the vet, I can pay for something if she, if she gets sick and needs medicine. Um, and I, I also have a car to get her to the vet. But if I didn't have a car to get to that, what would I do? Yeah. Um, so there are all these kinds of layers to things, um, and yet the dogs provided um, the coalition client with, in some cases, the only stability they had in their lives at all. Yeah. And so it really kind of broadened my sense of compassion for all people and all pets.
0: Yeah. You wrote uh, residents of lower income communities, especially those in African American and Latino neighborhoods simply did not have access to the same pet care resources and information that other animal lovers took for granted. Like you're talking about, I mean, having a car to go to the vet in the first place, let alone the finances. Right. Or what if you're them. a senior? Yeah. You know,
2: what if you're a senior in a wheelchair? Yeah. Um, I saw many, many um, of those cases. And so that's kind of the one piece that uh, the humane movement and the animal welfare movement, that's the one kind of piece of the puzzle that that um, despite all the gains that movement has made um, and to the benefit of all animals, uh, that's kind of the one piece of the puzzle that's missing is the link, you know, helping people kind of bridge yeah. that gap between resources and, and help.
0: Yeah. Um, it's interesting, I mean, all over the place. I see it a lot in my work, as you might imagine, working with dog behavior, where people project onto their dogs and, um, and then even identify, identify with their dogs, project onto their dogs. Um, you were in talking about, uh, sort of the history of, um, dog fighting and, um, Kit Burns in New York. And, and he was quoted saying, or in the book, you said, um, fighters of, of his day looked into the eyes of their dogs and saw themselves staring back. And I think that that's true for sort of people in general that we really identify with with dog our dogs and and that can play out in a number of different areas. And it was really potent uh, when you were writing about, kind of back to that organization, the Coalition for Unchained Dogs, you were writing about a former backyard pit bull breeder who is now somewhat of an uh, animal animal welfare spokesman named Rodney testified in a city council meeting that his neighborhood pets were suffering, not because their owners were cruel and depraved, but because the long history of inequality in those areas poisoned everything it touched, including the lives of animals. And he was referring to his own African American heritage and he drew a devastating parallel. He said, um, that he said we used to be in chains. He told the city council members, now our dogs are in chains. Um, And and, uh, it's so when you talk about the pride you know the shame versus the pride and how you've seen that in your work volunteering with that organization and how that transformation can happen sort of through the dog and then how that changes the dog's life as well as the human's life
2: Mm -hmm. oh absolutely yeah Um, it was just so powerful for me over and over and over again and it Really highlighted because when I started kind of going out into the communities and seeing that there were, you know, levels of systemic problems happening, especially, for instance, I had failed to appreciate the housing crisis mm. and how many people were facing eviction. Um, I don't know if you've come across a book named, uh, called Evicted by Matthew Desmond, but mm. he goes into this at length. Um, how hard it is for people with pets to find housing. Yeah. And how often, you know, people would be sleeping on the street so they wouldn't have to surrender their pets. But yeah. when you don't have choices and you don't know what your rights are. Your landlord can walk in one day and say, I've just decided not to allow pets and you're out by the end of the week and tough. Right. And if you don't, if you don't have any resources, you don't know how to, how to fight that. So with the pit bull issue, especially, it's almost impossible to find housing um, with a pit bull type dog. And that was really, you know, when I looked at the data, when you look at shelter relinquishments and stuff and you see how many of them are based on housing problems, Mm. it was really heartbreaking. I remember, you know, being in the car with Lori when she would get phone calls from people who were just in tears, it sounded like their heart was being ripped out of their chest because their landlord had just said, by the way, I'm not allowing pets anymore you have to get rid of your dog. Yeah. Um, and so it, that was such a critical piece. We have this idea that all these dogs are ending up in shelters because people just don't want them and they don't care. But I, th- in my experience, the number one reason the dogs were ending up in, sh- in shelters was often housing. Mm. Um, so it was just layer upon layer upon layer. I saw people struggling with addiction or domestic violence or, um, know, terminal illnesses, um, you know, people who might have had, um, you know, might have been sent to prison for whatever charge. And so animals are such a part of our lives that, of course, when those social problems are there, animals will be affected as well. It always is going to affect the people at the bottom of, you know, the social structure way more than it would attract. Um, you know, you,
0: you and me. Yeah. One of the things that I saw um, also throughout the book, so we're talking with Bronwyn Dickey, who's the author of a book titled Pitbull, The Battle Over an American Icon. And uh, when is the book uh, available for purchase?
2: As of right now. It launched yesterday.
0: Okay, perfect. Um, and we're actually, this um, this is uh, this, this interview is airing on the 25th. Uh, to promote your appearance the 28th, May 28th, at Elliott Bay Books, uh, 7 p.m. You're going to be doing a reading and book signing, so you can meet the author there and get your copy and get it signed as well. Um, so, the, you know, I was in, um, I went to Rome in November for the first time and um, visited the Colosseum. And took a tour. Took like the under the like it was like a three hour tour, and we went from. Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? Oh my gosh, it's. I mean, it's just Rome. Yeah, it was amazing, amazing. And, I mean, when you learn about the Colosseum, it's not. Mm. They're not pretty stories. I mean, it's like, mm. you know, from we're talking like the one, you know, first century BC or um, AD. Like it's like. Okay first of all, it's so old. And then you're like, and here's where the lion cages were and here's what, and here's what went on. And, you know, I, it was just like, how violent. And you were, you were talking about kind of the obsession with um, the gladiator, you know, the, the idea of the gladiator. And, and I remember when I was in, in the Coliseum thinking like, you know, how, Oh, how was this entertaining how is this entertaining to people and and all this kind of stuff and then our guide was describing to us what what life was like for humans and yeah. i was like well you know they 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 think this is they're living you know a very very hard brutal life themselves so the, the it's just interesting to look back on history and sort of see how our own experiences impact our expectations for like our treatment of animals. And, and you were talking a lot about, I mean, this is loaded with historical information. It's just incredible. And you're talking about, um, I think it was in uh, England and uh, like the first animal welfare organization that had come up and um, I'm trying to find the, Oh, the, the idea of, let's see. No, that's not it. Well, you're talking about, um, oh, one booster for England's SPCA insisted during the 1820s that the group's ultimate goal should be to, quote, spread amongst the lower orders of the people a degree of moral feeling which would compel them to think and act like those of superior class. I yep. was like, how? How? When... The access to resources, I mean, you know, it's like, really, like, it's that easy. We just need to sort of spread the word, and they're going to be like, oh, you know. It, it's well, just, also,
2: especially when members of that superior class were thinking and talking about people at the bottom of society as though they were animals themselves, yeah. and often treating them that way. Yeah. And so, I, I, was. it really stuck out to me when I was researching all that stuff, how, kind of, as you say, these violent, brutal... Pastimes of animal torture almost always coincided with with the harsh, condi- you know, miserable conditions that many people were in. You yeah. just didn't see. You don't see cultures of violence at that level. You don't see them take root and flourish in the same way when people are happy and well-adjusted and safe and right. well cared for. Right. Right. So, um, you know, if you look at kind of where. Um, the crime of dog fighting flourishes around the world. Yeah. Um, it's in these really kind of, um, broken and destitute places.
0: Yeah. And then the, uh, you talk about in the seventies, this, or no, I think it was in the sixties when it started this whole idea of sort of protection dogs and how there is this, uh, thanks to the media coverage of all of these horrific murders and stuff, um, that people are you know Americans are no longer feeling safe in their homes and so now here's this whole industry of protection dogs and and uh in 1972 300 uh, no 38,000 dog bites were reported in New York City compared to t- 2011's total around 3500 so right. you know it's just a uh, it's just so Interesting to look at all of these aspects. And again, I think that's what is so important when we open up a a conversation about a topic like this, you know, pit bulls and and other types of quote unquote dangerous breeds is really looking at this from an an educated and aware perspective and and understanding the history, understanding, I think most importantly, the human element of this, this human psychology around this and the... Um, issues of racism and classism, and 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 all of these all of these factors that basically have created this beast, you know, no pun intended.
2: No, yeah, well, and also the, you know, looking at or thinking critically about behavior, and I certainly do not claim to be a behavior expert or behaviorist. I've seen so many problems arise from people talking about, you know, making claims about behavior who should not be doing that, um, but. But when I did speak with people in the animal sciences, they did um, really drive home the fact that the relationship, you know, the behavior of a dog is contextual, and you do have to look at the dog in the context of its human environment. There, there are all these factors at play, but one of the, the largest is the individual dog's relationship with an individual person, and kind of the interplay, the species interplay that happens there mm-hmm. um, is where we can really learn the most. So if we're only looking at the dog, then then we're missing over half the story.
0: Yeah. Well, there is there's so much to this. It's um, just loaded with information. It's uh, just so informative and um, enlightening. And um, I think is such an important book for for you know as many people as possible to read. To really help us wrap our brains around this topic and to really, um, act in a way that's informed and educated and sort of coming from a place of understanding and most importantly, balance because pointing, pointing fingers across lines is just, it's, it's gotten us to this place now and, and that's clearly not working, um, as, as is true with so many other topics. And so it's, it's such a comprehensive book and and such an important one. And it's titled Pitbull, the battle over an American icon. And it's just such an interesting read. And um, I really thank you for putting it all together. And I mean, there's so much there that we have, we really barely talked in this conversation about, you know, the contents of the book, but Um, I think for me, the most important thing that I would want people to appreciate is to really look at humanity and not focus on the dogs, because I think as a general statement, we can look at all sorts of aspects of dogs in at least this country, but I think around the world, and that is they are a reflection of a state of of humanity and and human consciousness. And this is no different. And it's just so important to understand it from that perspective so that we can work to make things better.
2: Absolutely, because we all want to live in safe, humane communities. Yeah. Every one of us
0: yeah.
2: Um And I think the only way we can really do that is to, is to think critically about what's been said to us and ask questions and approach fear with uh, reason and science and information.
0: Yeah. Well, Bronwyn, thank you so much for your time today. Um, she's going to be at Elliott Bay Books Saturday, May 28th at 7 p.m. for a book signing and book reading. So if you're, uh, and that's in Seattle. And um, it's a great, uh, great opportunity to meet the author and get your copy signed. Again, the title is Pitbull. It is on sale now. And um, it's an excellent book. I highly recommend it. And Bronwyn, thanks so much for your time today and for most importantly writing this book.
2: Thank you so much for having
0: me. Okay. Okay. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Take a dog's life. Just laying in the sun. I'll take a dog's life. Cause I don't care for this one. Chasing trains and planes and rain. Where is my ring? Host at DogRadioShow.com. That's me, Julie Forbes. Host at DogRadioShow.com. I look forward to connecting. Wait, dogs can use Skype? We're really living in the future. (laughs) Looking for an easy way to give your dogs food a boost in nutrition? Or maybe your dog has a sensitive digestive tract, itchy skin, or is just a picky eater. We've had such great success feeding St. John Creamery raw goat's milk to our pack, and I recommend it to my clients all the time. You can get raw goat's milk for your dog all over the country. But if you live in Western Washington, be sure it's St. John Creamery you reach for in the freezer section of your local independent pet supply store. You can also pick up your milk at drop locations around the area visit stjohncreamery.com to learn more. That's stjohncreamery.com. Your dogs will love you for it.
1: Alternative Talk 1150. It's good for what ails you. This statement has not been evaluated by the FDA.
0: And now, back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. i will take a dog's life. Laying in the sun. I'll take a dog's life. Cause I don't care for this one. I don't care for this one. Welcome back to the dog show with Julie Forbes. Just had a great talk with Bronwyn Dickey, who's the author of a new book titled Pitbull, the battle over an American icon. It's really the first time on the show In over 375 episodes that I've talked about this problem in this country um, directly because Bronwyn's book really offers a balanced um, perspective. I can't recommend it highly enough. It was excellent. Um, Again, it's titled Pitbull and it is on sale now. And we are back now with another guest on the line with us. We have Stephen Bluestein, who's the co-founder and CEO of Pride Bites, which offers... Custom dog products of all different types—a um, sort of a unique, a unique approach to, um, you know, beds and collars and feeding mats and all sorts of things that you can actually customize. And uh, Stephen and Pride Bites were actually on one of my favorite shows, Shark Tank. Um, so Stephen, welcome to the dog show.
1: Thank you, Joey. Thanks for having us. We really mm-hmm. appreciate it. Yeah.
0: So tell us, um, tell us a bit about Pride Bites and, and what you offer. And if you're interested, as you're listening to check out the website, it is pridebites.com. So what do you have going on Ab- here?
1: Absolutely. So at Pride Bites, uh, Pet Parents Everywhere can customize and design anything they want for their pets. Uh, and what we want to provide uh, is just a whole lot more choices and a way to get one-of-a-kind products for really that one-of-a-kind family member uh, that's... that's now starting to be included definitely um, as that extended family member now.
0: So how are, what types of products do you offer? Give me some examples. And how how would somebody customize uh, a product for their pet or their their home?
1: Absolutely. So we allow you to customize a whole bunch of hard goods, uh, hard good products from beds, collars, leeches, toys, blankets, uh, kind of you name it, uh, all sorts of products for your pet. Uh, you go on PryBytes.com, you select the product that you want, you choose the colors, the trims, the patterns, uh, and then we allow you to upload uh, a design or an image of your dog, uh, and we hand design it, uh, and then allow you to personalize it with your name as well. Uh, then the customer gets it in about three to four weeks delivered right to their door.
0: So that was one of the things that I was curious about when I was like, okay, you can pick the color, you can have the dog's name, you know, etched in or whatever. And then it was like, photo? So is it like uh, um, the actual photo printed on or is it sort of a um, version of the photo that's designed and so like it, embroidered? Actually
1: hand, yeah, it's, it's printed on, but our designers hand design it. Um, so the one thing about, about private products that's actually very unique is, um, you know, the, the handcrafted element and that everything is selected and produced uh, independently and uniquely for that item. We don't mass produce anything. Um, everything is one of a kind gets produced when you order it uh and and really is that unique product for your dog
0: so it's a so i have a photo let's say i have a photo of one of my dogs and i want yeah. it on the dog bed is it um when you say it's hand created is it like painted embroidered
1: no it, it's actually digi- it's all done digitally okay. um, but our designers can design everything that they do. They go through the process of cutting out your dog, um, applying certain um, design techniques to it to make the photo pop better. Got it. Uh, and then apply it to the then apply it to the product, um, and it's printed on to give it really that high definition look okay. um, alongside your product.
0: Okay, got it. Because I'm picturing like you know uh, we have a booth like for example at the Seattle Kennel Club Dog Show every year, and there's always some very interesting fashion that we see there with people and their dogs or their breeds. And so, you know, I, I'm thinking of, like, the white T-shirt that has sort of a, you know, fuzzy quality photo that's just been sort of printed on. And I, I imagine, you know, that that's probably not going to look very good on a bed. But it sounds like your team uh, sort of alters the photo in that transferring process to make it look, like you said, to kind of pop and, and, and work with it a little bit so that it um, actually works on the piece.
1: Absolutely. Each of one of our products passes through our full design team is overseen by our main designer, um, who's extremely talented, uh, and really creates that kind of perfect image out of the photos that you provide us.
0: Cool. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. And so you guys were on Shark Tank.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: And tell me about, so I love that show. We don't watch a whole lot of television in our home, but that's one show that we will tune into and have for years so I'm curious, awesome. I'm curious to hear about what it was like. Um, and I know that it, it was a successful experience for you guys. Um, but what was that experience like being on there in front of the sharks?
1: Absolutely. So it's such a surreal experience, uh, you know, like, like yourself, you know, I've seen uh, you know probably a hundred episodes, yeah. so um, knowing what it's like to be in the tank and seeing that week in and week out and actually then being the one that's actually sitting in front of them, you know, I, I actually couldn't stop smiling. I was just like, couldn't believe I was there the entire time and having the opportunity, you know, when you're a startup and you've um, kind of gone through all phases that we have and really taking on something that's a really big challenge. Yeah. Um, you know, you go through all these iterations and had to have the moment where um, you get to basically pitch the biggest investors in the world mm-hmm. um, is, is just a one-of-a-kind experience.
0: Yeah. Well, how fun. Did, did your experience line up with your expectation, given that you had seen so many episodes? Was it sort of, did it did it feel like you anticipated it would or hoped it would anyway?
1: Yeah, I mean, it definitely aligned um, exactly, I think, with um, our expectations. Uh, you know, we prepared um, for so many different outcomes. And, um, you know, I think that's what you can do the best in, in that given situation is just try to See as many possibilities as you can, mm-hmm. uh, and you know we were fortunate enough to grab two sharks in the show and two sh- that that really love uh, pets, and and that's something that we you know are really thankful of. Mm-hmm.
0: And so was it Barbara and Robert? Is that right? Is my memory correct?
1: It's uh, actually Lori and Robert.
0: Lori and Robert, cool. And so you guys are working together now and taking the company to the next level.
1: Yeah, so the process, we're still actually going through the negotiation process. Okay, um, We are very close to getting done with a deal um, with Lori, so we're really excited about that and the potential uh, opportunity to be working with her in the future um, is really exciting and, and all the different outlets um, that we could sell um, with her help, of course.
0: Yeah. Well, it definitely seems, um, you know, it's the, the pet industry is a booming one. And um, as you know, and, and people are just crazy about their pets and really see them, especially in this country, I think as, as members of the family and there's, you know, the dog beds and the leashes and the bowls and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And so to have the ability to customize products, either to sort of match the interior of the house or to sort of, you know, um, customize it to your dog, um, and I would imagine that would be really nice for people, too, to, to have after their dogs pass away as well, to kind of have those those images there um, on a product or something like that would be kind of nice as a memory.
1: Absolutely. The commem- commemoration um, aspect of our product is is really great for somebody who, who's lost a loved one, of course, um, in the sense that, you know, we, we really want to create a new trend. And that's that 10 years from now, when you look at how you buy products. We want you to be able to be buying products that are unique to you, um, that really exemplify your style and that are not just generic and buying the same product over and over again. And, you know, now, um, as I said earlier, that the, you know, the pet is a member of your family, you really want to showcase your style and the type of person that you are through, through your dog. And I think that's something that, you know, we really cherish and, and to give our pets, you know, it's just something that's one of a kind.
0: Yeah. Well, Thank you so much for your time today. Again, the website is called pridebites.com and you can go check it out and customize your own dog bed or, or eating mat or whatever it is that uh, strikes your fancy and uh, even put an image of your own dog on there. So that's pretty cool. Thank you so much and congrats on your success on Shark Tank. That's exciting. I look forward. I haven't seen the episode, so I actually look forward to to seeing you on there and see how it goes. And uh, best of luck to you.
1: Well, thank you so much, Julie. We really appreciate the opportunity to spread our
0: word. And you can find all of our episodes archived on our website, dogradioshow.com. You can also find them on our Facebook page. We post them there as well. Pick up your copy of that book. It's a really, really important book. I really recommend it. Again, it's titled Pitbull, and it is on sale now. And hey, if you're listening from anywhere really in the world, you can um, email me, host at dogradioshow.com, if you would like me to send you a free The Dog Show with Julie Forbes car sticker. I'm happy to do so, or if you want uh, several of them, and you can hand them out to your friends, or if you have a business and you'd like to display them for your customers, I can send you uh, even a bunch of them with a display as well. Host at DogRadioShow.com. That's a great way to reach me. Thanks so much to our guests today. Thanks for listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. You've been listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, Wednesday afternoons at 2 on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. Never miss another episode. Listen to our podcast online at dogradioshow.com or download them for free on iTunes or SoundCloud.